The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Siemens Smart Grid. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio with your host, Sunjog All. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sunjog All. Hello and uh, welcome to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. And as always, we invite you to join the discussion on Twitter, hashtag CTR Live, and look for this show as hashtag Digital Divide. Today's topic is, could global connectivity transform the world's economy? And our guests for today's show are Dr. John Gant, who is the director of the Center for Digital Inclusion and a professor at the Graduate School of Library and Information Sciences at the University of Illinois. Good morning, John. How are you? Hi. How are you? Thank you. I'm, I'm good. Doing... Yeah, thank you. So life is good there? Sure. Yep. I'm in Los Angeles today, but yeah, life is very good. Great. And we have... Uh, William Brindley, who is a recently retired CEO and Executive Director of Netho and a special advisor to several firms in the social sector. Morning, Bill. How are you doing? Good morning. Doing well. All right. Great, great. And finally, we have John Winhausen, Jr., who is the Executive Director of the School's Health and Library Broadband Coalition, which is also acronym is SHLB. Good morning, John. How are you? Uh, good morning, Sancho. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Welcome, all of you. And uh, so this is an Internet-based radio show, as we know. And many of us now take for granted that we have Internet access in order to listen to something like this. But guess what? Nearly two-thirds of the world's population does not have connectivity. So some coalitions have proposed the idea to spread Internet connectivity globally. And we wanted to see and explore how that effort could help the greater good and stimulate a region's infrastructure as well as the economy. So, uh, Dr. John Gant, the question, the first question I have for you, that why should anyone be thinking about global connectivity as a priority when we talk about other agenda, which is put out as part of political parties or governments to essentially work on poverty or employment or other things which are more a direct impact versus thinking about whether I have Internet access or not? Yeah, great question. <clears throat> and I actually think that, that both topics go hand in hand. I think building out the, the world's global infrastructure for sharing information uh, goes hand in hand also with addressing those issues of poverty, uh, economic disparity, um, you know, uh, hunger, uh, health issues, and things like that. You know, one way that you can, you know, it's often framed just as you said, a trade-off between investments to try and improve building, uh, you know, more broadband networks and more connectivity versus uh, programs to help uh, alleviate hunger and poverty and, and things like that. But I actually look at it as, as, as both pieces need to fit together very well. The way I look at it is that simply if, uh, in, you know, when you do have those, uh, you know, parts of our, country, our world where there is a lot of poverty and a lot of hunger and things like that, 
um, there's actually a very high information need as well. There's a great information need of trying to figure out, um, you know, where can I go to get help? Where can I get, go to get health services? Or where can I go to get um, food or, or, you know, relief for my crops and, and things like that? Um, so I think that, you know, that it becomes very expensive to get that information when you're not well-connected. Uh, you know, there's so many different examples. Uh, you know, my research team has been in, in different parts of Africa where, you know, we hear stories of people having to walk miles just to get information uh, about a government program or to get, you know, to go see a doctor or to go to school and things like that. Uh, and that's pretty expensive in terms of a person's time if most of the time is spent, uh, you know, to actually trying to get to that information. Uh, one thing about connectivity, improving, you know, connections with uh, computers and, and through the Internet and so forth, is that you can really help to reduce the time it takes to search for the information that you may need. And it also provides an infrastructure that may make it easier to provide some of these services as well. You know, we've seen you know, emerging examples in telehealth, uh, for example, where, you know, uh, there are so many areas of, and even in the United States, where uh, it's hard to have a doctor who's available that's nearby. But, you know, by being connected through the Internet, you know, the doctor can see more patients instead of spending, you know, the time on the road trying to go from one clinic in one part of a state to another, you know, rural part of the state and so forth. Um, and so those are just a couple examples. So I see this issue as actually going hand in hand. And I think it's actually an imperative that we do try and find ways to improve our connectivity to address these very critical human development problems that we have around the world. So, Bill, question for you, um, and uh, this is basically based on or piggybacking on Dr. John's response. So, we say, yes, we need it, and we did not have this particular connectivity as a major agenda. So, why now? Well, I wanted to give an example to piggyback on what John said and then uh, come back to your question. Maybe go from the specific uh, example to the general answer to you. But take, for example, the world's largest refugee camp, which is in Dadaab, uh, Kenya. Um, we have, we see, uh, it's one of the largest areas of concentration of people that are fleeing uh, droughts and persecution in the world. It is the largest. And uh, it's a great example of what he was talking about because the various, uh, the UN and CARE and Save the Children, uh, various relief organizations wanted to provide health education and so forth for the refugees but before they could do that we had to build out the broadband access in order to enable that for the relief workers in the first instance and then to put an umbrella up over the entire camp in order for the uh, refugees to be able to get direct access begin to reconnect with misplaced persons with their family members uh, get help from various other sources transfer payments and so forth and it became an ecosystem of partners, the government, the various uh, international organizations, uh, commercial uh, corporate organizations, Safaricom and others, as well as others on the ground, local NGOs working together. So there's an example where the access build-out led to the applications, if you will, uh, that were needed for education and health, and we can go into that in more detail. So that's a specific kind of microcosm. It's a huge one, but it's a microcosm of what we're talking about. I think we can extrapolate from that and see it all around the world in terms of the various countries of the world, mainly the lesser country, lesser developed countries 
that need Internet penetration. When they do, they see enormous gains in economic and social benefit. So this question is for Dr. John Winhausen. Your uh, coalition, which is talking about schools, health, and libraries, and I'm assuming that there is some uh, connection with what you do in the United States, which is a developed nation, and also what other organizations could be doing in connection with you in underdeveloped nations. What's that connection? And coming back to the same question, you could have broadband and have people get smart boards and many other forms of interactivity, which is more incremental enhancement to what we have already been doing. But do you think that can fundamentally bootstrap an underdeveloped nation? Well, I do, Sanjog, and thank you. Uh, so our coalition uh, specializes in highlighting the importance of providing broadband for anchor institutions. Uh, so the schools, health and libraries, but also community centers, medical clinics, public media, the idea behind um, our coalition and, and the philosophy that we have is that if you can build out broadband first to these anchor institutions, they provide a really uh, solid foundation for extending broadband throughout the rest of the community later on. So in other words, the, the anchor institutions for the community can also be like an anchor tenant on a, the build-out of a broadband network. They're secure, uh, they pay their bills, they're, they're institutions that have a lot of respect in the community. And if you can build out to these, um, uh, the, the, these institutions that are also using broadband to provide essential services to the residents uh, of the community, then you can extend that broadband further um, out to serve the residential and, and business consumers. So in other words, this is sort of the opposite of a build it and they will come philosophy. Uh, we advocate a success-based build approach where you build out to those anchor institutions that are more likely to uh, be good tenants and help the sustainability of that broadband network. But if, if I could just also comment on the, the applicability of broadband to uh, lesser developed nations, we've also found that uh, – Mobile broadband connectivity, wireless broadband connectivity, is increasingly important for agriculture. Um, John Deere, the tractor manufacturer now, has some really interesting things going on where the tractors themselves are equipped with um, devices that can monitor the soil conditions, the weather conditions, provide instantaneous feedback to farmers about how they should work the land. So. Uh, and improve um, food productivity. So this has enormously valuable implications for lesser developed countries that broadband can benefit them. In fact, uh, the fellow from John Deere likes to say that if you work the land, you need broadband. So um, coming back to uh, John, Dr. John Gant, now based on all the different responses, one approach is to say that we will create this and there will be an automatic adoption as uh, John Winhausen said. That normally doesn't happen. So is there uh, an outcry from the lesser developed nation that give us connectivity and that would become the platform or the plumbing through which information will flow and that's what's going to become the backbone of our development? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. You know, it's often, uh, you know, it's mentioned earlier that, you know, once, you know, as John Winhausen said, um, you know, um, a strategy that does not work well is to build it and assume they will come. Uh, you know, adopting uh, broadband is, is a challenge um, everywhere around the world. 
and particularly in uh, less developed uh, countries. Uh, it's, you know, there's one, of course, the whole issue of building out the infrastructure itself. Uh, but the second issue is, the, you know, around the adoption of the devices uh, to access the, uh, the Internet and, uh, and, and, using, and using those uh, devices effectively. Uh, you know, I've done a significant amount of, of work looking at these issues around the adoption. And it's not just, you know, um, oftentimes we hear it's a matter of cost. You know, if we can drive down the cost of these devices, that'll work. But, you know, there's uh, an important uh, digital literacy component that's, that's relevant here. And it's, and it's a very complex issue uh, when we look at this digital or computer literacy. You know, that really focuses on trying to understand how to make people feel comfortable using uh, the computer or these smartphones or tablets or other devices. And so that's one level of literacy, you know, just how do you work your way around, you know, a computer with a keyboard and the mouse and, you know, and, or around a smartphone, you know, with apps and things like that. But that's the only the, the starting point. The, the other thing is, how do you feel comfortable using it for things that you're really trying to do? So it's not only that device, but it's also the service that you're trying to access. Um, you know, this example of uh, John Deere or, you know, looking at agricultural or crop development or post-harvest loss and things like that. Uh, you know, my, I've had a, um, a couple of my uh, students uh, doing work in uh, sub-Saharan Africa looking at the adoption of these technologies for agricultural uses. And, you know, they overwhelmingly find that it's not only the digital literacy, but it's about how do I understand the content that I'm looking at? You know, how do I understand the data that's being provided here about different approaches for planting, you know, my seed or taking care of my crops or harvesting or protecting the crops so that, you know, I minimize loss and things like that. How do I understand this really complex information uh, when um, my own literacy level may be relatively low? Um, you know, it's hard for me to understand, you know, you know the, uh, the context as well. So that, add, you know, that adds to the complexity of doing this. Let's take a quick break. Listeners will be right back. And uh, Bill, when we come back, I'd like to pose this question where we spoke about John Deere putting some cool technology to look at soil. But if an organization or a community can afford a John Deere tractor, I'm sure there would be other things that they can put on. But here we are talking about people who do not know where the next meal is going to come from. And so if you have to look at that type of that strata of people, what is the technology and or other processes and other social fabric which will have to be created in order for them to be able to leverage the connectivity that we are offering here? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. 
If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Joke All. Welcome back. Uh, so, Bill, as I mentioned that uh, if you have already invested in a larger equipment and you're able to put some more mobility and or other devices, then that's great for an organization or a business. But then when we're talking about hungry and poor people who do not know where the next meal is going to come from, right? what is the type of uh, fabric or foundation that needs to be created? And uh, so to that, what do, what do you have to say? Well, first of all, let's bear in mind that uh, the that this is the fastest access is the fa- uh, broadband is the fastest growing technology in human history. So this is spreading like wildfire. Even though now we know that 90, more than ninety percent of the people in the forty nine least developed countries are without broadband access, it's growing fast, and we see it all over uh, Africa, the the global south, so to speak. Um, so that said, to your specific question, what we're finding is in the frugal innovation, if you will, the, the creative approaches that people in need use to gain access. Uh, so they will share SIM cards. If one has a phone but doesn't have, uh, but can be shared with others, they can get the SIM cards to swap out and put in, and several people can use the same phone. The kiosk idea of years ago has been been reinvented in a number of places. I mentioned the refugee camp in Dadaab. There are a number of places now that are doing micro-outsourcing, where they're doing various types of testing and review in the refugee camp because they now have access, giving economic opportunity, particularly to young women and girls who normally don't get access, because they can get access through these forms of, of new forms of sort of kiosk or centers that are being set up by the various NGOs and the international groups such as the UN. So we're seeing a lot of innovation, if you will, at the grassroots. I call it tri- trickle-up innovation, or someone else does, I borrowed the term, where you see the necessity is the mother of invention, and a lot of these creative ways of getting access, because people want access, are, are, are being developed. So, Dr. John Winhausen, your, uh, your particular environment uh, where you are talking about schools and health and libraries and they are connected through broadband, do you think those underdeveloped nations have those schools and uh, health care uh, organizations and or places where people can go to get uh, health care and as well as libraries for them to piggyback on a wireless or a wired broadband connection to finally get the value? Well, our view is that you need a complement of both uh, fiber optic uh, cables to distribute a wired signal to the anchor institutions, uh, and then wireless uh, from then out to the community is is often going to be the best economic strategy um, because the schools and libraries generate an enormous amount of uh, bandwidth or, 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 or Internet traffic, so they need very high-capacity, large-bandwidth solutions and fiber optic cable is really the best transmission medium to carry that kind of traffic. But then from there, a, a mobile wireless solution really makes a lot of sense to extend the reach of that signal in a, a lower-cost way uh, to individual consumers. But I think the, um, the key point is that 
just following on what uh, Bill discussed, uh, broadband is increasingly um, uh, not just growing, but it's seen as the foundation for economic growth. Uh, there's a lot of evidence in the United States that once you deploy a broadband network uh, to the anchor institutions in the community, that businesses have a much greater incentive to locate there, uh, and it creates jobs, uh, not just from new employment, but also the people in that community are more economically productive. And I think that in developing countries, that argument is even stronger, uh, that I like to say that broadband is really a meta-infrastructure. It's not just on a par with um, energy and transportation. It really uh, enables smarter highways, uh, enables smarter utility uh, use of energy. Um, it increases the overall economic productivity of that community. And, frankly, communities and, and countries are competing with each other now about who's going to be able to deploy this technology best because that's going to be the way to attract more more businesses and economic growth, which will eventually um, lead to, uh, you know, uh, addressing the, the food and health problems of that community and bring them better resources. Dr. John Gant, question for you. Mm -hmm. This is not a new idea, and we might have been thinking about it, and perhaps you might have been involved or your group might have been involved in doing research on it five years ago as well. How has the evolution taken place? Do you think now we suddenly feel that we have a, a, a capability to create a wider impact just because the broadband is going to be more affordable or more accessible everywhere? Or what are the newer challenges that you're finding which you did not think earlier when you had that grand idea? Or as us, as all of us, had a grand idea that if you put connectivity out there, the life is going to become beautiful for all people concerned. Yeah, you know, I appreciate um, Bill's point earlier, you know, talking about how rapidly uh, broadband is being adopted around the, the world, um, how aggressively uh, countries are trying to expand their networks, and how focused they are on trying to get the network's you know, connectivity really improved to, uh, you know, as John Winhausen is talking about, you know, to community anchor institutions, um, you know, schools, libraries, health organizations, you know, at, at a community or a neighborhood level. But it's taken us some time to get where we are. You know, this morning when I woke up, I just, re you know, I was thinking about it a little bit more, but it's been this long-lasting, perfect, uh, you know, convergence of what's we've seen happening, you know, because the internet itself is pushing 40 years old, um, and then we have, um, you know, the uh, the telephone in, in the U.S. Um, you know, we've got the telephone service and then cable on top of it. As we've seen computers improve in terms of the processing speed, um, we've seen more and more people become comfortable having a digital life. Um, you know, we're at a point now where we see this really, this really intense convergence of the network and also devices and our processing capabilities like we've never, ever seen before. Um, it's pretty remarkable to think that, uh, you know, you can have a smartphone uh, and be, you know, connected uh, and be able to actually do something meaningful. It's not the perfect platform. It should not be your exclusive platform for doing it. But, um, you know, when I, you know, have a uh, a friend who's from Ghana who was there over the Christmas uh, or over the holiday break, Christmas time, and you know he was talking about how you know they're they're kind of leapfrogging ahead to really trying to deploy more wireless, and that um, everybody in his family, extended family there, you know, is using a smartphone, um, and really seeing that being used as a way of of being connected uh, for, for phone calls, but doing all kinds of other things uh, as well, like they've never been connected before. Um, 
so I, I you know I, I see that we're moving very very you know the evolution is very very quickly, but then there's all kinds of hidden things that we don't think about. Uh, you know, we've got the privacy issues, we've got security issues to think about as well. Uh, we've got reliability issues as well too. Uh, we're coming more and more comfortable um, using these, uh, you know, the phones and the internet, and we're depending on it more. So reliability becomes a big issue, and that means then we're looking at issues: how do we improve our electric supply so that we can uh, do this? We've seen, you know, innovative things happen. I've seen, uh, you know, in Kenya, for example, people setting up these battery stations out just in rural areas so people can yeah. charge up their mobile devices so they can remain connected and turn that into a, you know, a small business and that type of thing. So that, that's something that, that's coming out uh, more that we, you know, don't, we, we didn't really think about. And then the whole regulation of the use of the, uh, of the network as well, too, is, is becoming uh, an important uh, local policy prog- uh, problem uh, around the world as well, too. You know, who has access, who owns the network, uh, you know, what rights do they have, how much do they charge, how do we regulate use, uh, and things like that. And, you know, there's a, uh, a lot of effort to try and figure out how do we break down some of these regulatory barriers that, um, we're, that we're now really starting to understand its impact on how it can limit in, in some countries, you know, the, the spread and use of the network as well, too. So those, those so, are some, you know, hidden things that have starting to come up that we didn't really think about, you know, early on. So, Bill, when you look at uh, all three of your respective organizations that you represented or are representing, they had uh, an agenda to do a com- create some common good for all people concerned. But then you are also partnering for for with pro- for profit organizations who want to, of course, bring a healthy profit. And yes, they have a community give back program. How much of your uh, assumption that they will give you? Uh, their services at a subsidized price or give you the same level of service that you could otherwise demand if you were a commercial enterprise so that you can carry out your agenda with respect to creating this broadband connectivity across the underdeveloped nation where they don't seem to have a direct opportunity in many cases to make a lot of money. Yeah, there are kind of two ways to look at that. Um, one is uh, during emergencies, there's often sort of free broadband, if you will, repositioning of satellites, various ISPs and other providers. So that's kind of one model, and that's understandable during a crisis that often will be afforded to organizations that are responding to the disaster. To your specific question on an ongoing basis, you have different, depending on the locale, uh, John, one of the Johns alluded to the, the environmental regulatory environment. Different environments afford different opportunities for the commercial providers because the governments restrict different things in different locales. So, for example, in Ethiopia, VoIP is technically, I believe, still illegal. So you can't get VoIP access in certain places as a result. So you have to be creative and innovative in those contexts and environments. But generally speaking, if you can come with enough scale, they're very receptive. Let me take a specific example that speaks to both of these. After the disaster, uh, sadly, in Haiti in 2010, um, a group of uh, companies, NGOs, and others responded by sending uh, Cisco, Microsoft, uh, uh, NetHope, and a number of the NGOs sent in engineers to build out Wi-Fi and uh, VSAT satellite connections over Port-au-Prince. 
They did that within 24, 48 hours. They were on planes going in. Equipment was shipped. They built out the network because much of the network was down. As you may recall, the cable was cut, and they weren't able to get access. In fact, Secretary Clinton said, until we get access, we can't deliver the goods that need to be uh, delivered, certainly not in an effective and a coordinated way. So we went in with others, so an ecosystem of partners, and built out that network. Great. We brought back up the NGOs, the international community, hospitals, and others started to get access to that, the relief workers. Over the next nine months, and this is where the story kind of gets to phase two, we built a value-added network through this sort of CapEx, if you will, that was provided by groups like Cisco and Microsoft and others that sort of, if you will, invested during the emergency by supplying. We created a value-added service that nine months later, because NetHope and other organizations didn't weren't in the business of being a vendor, they turned that service over to indigenous Haitians to run as a value-added network now on top of the now-recovering uh, city. So it became a sort of two-step thing where, if you will, the CapEx came in through the emergency, and the OpEx came, or the, the operating expenses were provided, you know, through the run rates of the groups, and they found improved service at a lower cost, and the ISPs and others, as they came back, were pleased to have this additional value-added service. In fact, many of the organizations and NGOs that we know well said we'd never had such good service. And that, of course, has the economic and social tail benefit to it. So I hope that's a good illustration of what we're talking about. Great, great response, uh, Bill. Thank you so much. And uh, listeners, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. And when we come back, John, uh, Winhausen question for you is, if you were given a carte blanche and to do things the right way or the way you feel best, what could you do leveraging your organization or what would you envision can be done with respect to schools, health, libraries, and also other areas in which an impact can be created if connectivity was put in a proper way. And if at all it is not happening today, what is hope? What is preventing uh, those things from happening, the ideal state? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. 
Welcome back. So, uh, John Winhausen, the question here is that if you were given the carte blanche and you were given all the resources, what do you think is possible and what's truly holding it back? First, I'd say there needs to be a, a, a well-thought-out plan for broadband deployment. Um, it can't just be that you deploy the fiber cables or you deploy an infrastructure alone. It needs to be uh, a comprehensive strategy because what we found is that um, it's really, it, it, it requires an environment of not just the broadband transmission facilities, but also the computer equipment, uh, the applications running over those broadband networks, and then training for people uh, to be able to understand how they use this technology and all four of these components need to be addressed in a uh, more comprehensive way for it to be successful. There have been some economic studies that show if you just deploy broadband alone without the rest of the ingredients, it really uh, falls flat. It doesn't generate the kind of economic growth and productivity that you're looking for. Um, so that, that's one point. Um, uh, the other point is that I, I think we've seen from some experiments about uh, trying to over- uh, overinvest uh, all the way to the home can sometimes um, be economically uh, not the best way to go from the get-go. And I guess I'm thinking right now of Australia uh, that five or six years ago announced this very ambitious plan to get fiber to all of the uh, homes or 95% of the homes or so in that country. And now they've had to pull back on that strategy a bit because it's seen as, as um, uh, they're not sure that they can make that economically viable. I think the New Zealand strategy might actually be a better long-term uh, approach in that they focused on getting fiber into each community first and then allowing some competitive market forces uh, to uh, incite greater competition for use of those facilities and lease of those facilities um, and, and take advantage of some of those innovative uh, incentives to develop a, a more robust suite of services riding over that dark fiber facilities that the government has invested in. So even though it sounded as initially as a more cautious way to go in New Zealand than Australia, that may be a better long-term approach for developing countries as well. And again, suggesting that um, investing out to the, the schools and libraries and other anchor institutions is a really smart way to go because they provide such important services for their community. So if you can't get broadband all the way to the individual consumer, at least give them a place in their community where they can go to. So go to the library, and then you can get Internet access there. You can use their computers. You can get trained by the um, uh, people, uh, employees at the library who can bring you up to speed and show you how to use the technology. You can go to the uh, health institutions and get uh, remote diagnostics of your health conditions relayed back to the urban hospitals. Uh, and, of course, the schools are really important as well because so much of the future jobs are going to be in technology-rich uh, industries. And this is true in the United States, but it's true across the world, that the future employment is really going to depend upon your basic ability to use Internet technologies, computer technologies, online applications, um, and that's why a lot of these high-tech companies are beginning to invest in the schools in order to help train students so they have more well-trained uh, potential employees that they can hire afterwards. And that's a big step towards solving some of these unemployment problems that are 
plaguing the, the whole world right now uh, because uh, students don't have the technology skills to really be productive workers in the workforce. So it's really a comprehensive strategy uh, set of solutions that need to be pursued simultaneously. Yeah, could I, could I add on to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, and yeah, I, you know, John lays out this uh, comprehensive strategy, which is absolutely the right and smart way to move forward. Um, but there's a second part of the story that needs to be included, maybe in the second part of the comprehensive strategy, is within those different sectors to look more deeply of, of how do we make sure that the libraries, the schools, the healthcare organizations have the right resources and capabilities uh, to do this. So one reason why I'm out here in California is I'm actually looking at the other end of the spectrum, sort of the next generation of the Internet, and how do we get more libraries and schools connected to that whole next generation ecosystem that's out there. But it, and so as I've been going to you know, small and large libraries around the country and schools and so forth, um, a common story that I hear is saying we're connected, but we've got to make some changes inside of our library so we can accommodate um, the larger numbers of people who are coming here to use our services. And so they're looking at how do we change the work structure, how do we retrain librarians to be on the front lines to provide that digital literacy training and support? Um, how do we even do some things with changing our hours or making sure we have enough computers for people to get things done? You know, a common problem that I hear that's very disheartening, you know, I've been in some very um, um, poor areas uh, around the world, and you see people make it to that library to go, let's say, fill out, and, you know, like in rural parts of the United States, fill out a job application, but yet they only get a half hour on the computer. And how many people can do a job application in a half hour? Not many, um, and, and that type of thing. So, so what I'm seeing is, you know, these calls from library leaders or school leaders saying, you know, help us develop strategies so that our organizations can do a better job of providing uh, information, ac you know, access to the Internet and so forth. Uh, as well, because that wasn't really the first line of training, uh, and, and so now they're saying, you know, how can we um, be smarter and, and be more effective at helping to provide access now that we are, you know, showing up on the front lines providing the support to our community? Can I piggyback on that too, please? Yes, Bill, please Bill. go ahead. Great, yeah, in terms of the comprehensive, and I, I agree with everything that's been said, multifaceted, multi-pronged approach, I mean, we have to, re I'm sure we all know on this call and the listeners know that the, a mobile device is the Internet in most of the developing world, obviously the developed world in, uh, as, uh, in the first instance, but now increasingly in the developing world. Ninety-five percent of Kenyans have access, for example, uh, according to the Communication Commission of Kenya, to a mobile device. So uh, you see this increasingly. I was just not long ago in Rwanda. We came out of Kigali. We were driving in the darkness all the way up to Ruangari, way out to the frontier. And it was, it was dark. You didn't see many lights, but very few. You, we, we would go through a town, and the headlights of the uh, Land Rover that we were in uh, hit a, you know, looked ahead of us, and we saw people clustered in the middle of the road, mm -hmm. All, and they parted as we came through. Our lights shone. You didn't see lights in the village, but as they parted and as we came through, almost all of them were on cell phones or had cell phones, mobile phones. 
it was a real eye-opener to me. Because then I, I knew this, and I've seen it elsewhere, but it was like, even then, and even in that kind of circumstance, they're increasing access to mobile devices. So that is the Internet. So I think we have to kind of remember that as we, that this is sort of the leapfrog opportunity in the developing world is riding on the wave of mobile uh, access. Now, you have access in the phones, but then the data part, or Internet subscribers, of course, is where the expense is. For example, in Kenya, while 90-some percent have access, have mobile phone access, only 25% currently have Internet on their phones. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be the, the growth area. And then, of course, there's enormous business opportunity there as well. Can I just add, add on to that, too? And so it goes back to John's original point, too, about building out the fiber. More mobile means that uh, increases the demand for more fiber. Because all those mobile phones have to get out, get back from the, you know, the towers and in, you know, to the Internet itself. And so having that fiber infrastructure, you know, really making sure we've got a good, strong, reliable um, fiber infrastructure within countries around the world is, is imperative. And, well, and that, to that, yeah. Sorry, to that point, I mean, you, we may recall not just five years ago the cable, the submarine cable came right. down from Djibouti, right. East Africa, which enabled East Africa and what I just described to start to happen. Your very point, the cable came in. Uh, to to the country and then into the east, eastern part of the of East Africa and started to then go across land and across the uh, airwaves and, and access became increasingly available at a more and more affordable price. Right, and then yeah, and then the second part of that too is the reliability. You know, we're seeing single strands of you know trunks of fiber entering into countries, but you know um, you know if we can. The, this connectivity also depends on those networks being connected to each other, not only you know, to provide for the key reason of providing diverse paths of this traffic to get back to the main, major trunks, so that if there's a cut anywhere, you know, traffic can be rerouted a different way so there's no interruption in service. So here's where you need that inter-country collaboration and agreements um, so that the, you know, we can have not only trunks of fiber go through, but also establish redundant um, um, paths so that we can make sure that there is a reliable uh, path to go through, regardless of what's going on. You know, if there's some kind of crisis, uh, man-made or natural, cuts in lines and things like that, you know, that traffic can be rerouted. And then, of course, then it opens up all these other kinds of questions of, you know, inter-country agreements for doing that type of thing uh, and so forth. But that's, that, I think that's also an important imperative. And the other thing is you have to look at the economic incentives. Back to the question a little while ago, yeah, in a disaster you get the sort of uh, philanthropic or charitable, however you want to describe it, impulse, and that's wonderful. That's great that we see the better angels, if you will, of human nature and of corporations and others. But really, let's face it, for something to be sustained, there has to be uh, a series of economic incentives all along the way, mm -hmm. and that's what you see. You see opportunities for economic uh, uh, growth in the countries and for corporations, and that's what will drive this and is driving it, and it's inexorable. I mean, it's spreading like wildfire in terms of the mobile growth across the developing world. Let's take a quick break. Listeners will be right back. And uh, John Winhausen, I'll ask you a question. You did mention about Australia and New Zealand, and it seems both of them are not truly underdeveloped. 
or lesser developed nations, they were trying to bring it for incremental benefit. So what if we actually go beyond thinking that we have to have this landline infrastructure? Uh, yes, fiber has to be brought in to provide mobile internet access. But if we did do that, then instead of trying to create uh, the aggregation point for schools, health and libraries, instead have that be available on mobile devices to those individuals and then start working in terms of how they can get better jobs or how they can get better care and and even the commerce flourishes. What's your take if that was to be taken as the route? Is there a problem with it? Or if not, then what is preventing us from going that route? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Joke All. Welcome back. So, John Winhausen, the question here is that if you were to bypass the desktop access age, and which already to some extent has bypassed, and now we're in the mobile age, then many of the perceived issues that we were trying to struggle may no longer be relevant. So why not, you know, concentrate our energies to say, I have infrastructure, I have mobile internet access, and what do I do with it now? Well, I mean, there's no question that providing mobile access at the start is probably the the cheapest and, and easiest way to get the technology into people's hands most quickly. Um, I, I think the question I would ask in the, the, the countries, uh, developing countries need to ask themselves is, how is this going to lead to economic productivity in a way that's going to generate more investment and more jobs uh, in the country going forward? So there's a certain level of basic connectivity that you can get through mobile access. Um, I'm not sure that that's uh, going to provide the technology skills for the future. And as Bill mentioned, how so many mobile phones are not connected to the Internet today. Um, even when they are connected to the Internet, uh, oftentimes the speeds of transmission over a mobile device are not really the kinds of bandwidth that you need for innovation, for, for using uh, higher quality applications. Uh, so, for instance, you, it's very difficult to do a lot of e-commerce uh, over a mobile phone, and increasingly that's uh, a huge source of, of additional business and revenue um, is, is using the Internet for commercial transactions. Um, and so that's why I'm still going to advocate for uh, some 
deployment of wired infrastructure. Fiber optic infrastructure would be the best, although there are, there are other wires as well. But at least with fiber, once you deploy a fiber optic cable, that cable may last you for decades. Uh, it, it can be upgraded just by changing the electronics on either end of that fiber. So the big challenge, I think, for developing countries is how can they integrate um, fiber optic solution that does give you the foundation for innovation and has almost unlimited amounts of bandwidth that you could use uh, for decades into the future and really be a foundation for uh, economic activity, for educational activity, uh, for health activity, um, you, you, you really are, it, it is an investment. It's an upfront cost, and I know that's easier said than done, but the payback for having a widespread fiber infrastructure that's compatible with the mobile infrastructure that builds off of it is really the best long-term strategy that, that a country can pursue. So people are hungry now. They need uh, the next meal in few hours. And yes, I totally agree with uh, what John Windhausen says, that they have to do it. But Bill, I come back to you. What do you do with this Catch-22? I want to feed those people. And yes, I want to give that long-term strategy too. Right. I think it's uh, short, medium, and long, right? There's an immediate need to your very point, And they're very resourceful people providing that. And people are using SMS and various lower-level technologies. We found in one of our studies that we conducted that radio uh, is one of the key ways that you get information out, very low-tech. So, you know, the people are creative and they're finding ways. So there's short terms. There's no proverbially no silver bullet for that kind of thing, but groups are doing that, as I described with the Dadaab refugee camp and with Haiti. There's medium term where you're starting to see 30% growth a year in access to mobile devices in the developing world. It's spreading like wildfire increasingly. And you're seeing creative uses with low, low um, bandwidth Facebook and, and Facebook Zero and other things, games, uh, bringing young people onto the Internet. So you're starting to see gamification, other things on mobile devices, and to the point that was just made, commercial uses on mobile devices increasing. That's medium. And then long-term, absolutely, creating a regulatory and infrastructure environment and the infrastructure for increased broadband, uh, you know, as was described, is critical. That does take a lot of capital, a lot of time, but clearly there's amazing salutary benefit. So, uh, Dr. John, uh, if you were to look at everything that was said, and, you know, we are closing out in a few minutes, what is it that are the top three things that you would like to appeal to the government, to the not-for-profits, and also to the commercial sector for them to uh, create whatever is necessary so we are not uh, going and playing the Catch-22 game and instead start feeding some mouths? Yeah, um, first of all, um, it's a complex problem. It's not a problem that can be solved exclusively by any one of those sectors. Um, it's a problem that has to be solved with those um, sectors working together and collaboratively uh, to do that. So that's the first uh, thing. I would say that the um, priority uh, would be to continue to build out, you know, the long, you know, develop these long-term strategies for building out the infrastructures um, that are necessary. And then also um, a second priority is improve the capacity within uh, various organizations to actually utilize uh, these technologies. It, the whole point is to try 
to try and drive down the cost it takes for using this information and to make and to actually use it in a productive way for making better decisions and things like that. Um, and, uh, and and thirdly, we can't ignore that these short-term needs are, are here. They're here now. We've got to address these now. When somebody's hungry, they're, they they need food today. Uh, they need a job today, uh, and that and they need health care today. So we've got to address those problems as best we can right now. But those organizations coming in uh, want to solve them uh, effectively, and they need lots of information to be able to do that um, to enhance accountability, to enhance transparency. Uh, and, and also, um, I, I'd say another priority is to make sure that we are doing things uh, in a way that really protects the privacy of the people that are that are being served. Uh, that is often overlooked. You know, we have digital bits of our lives all over this Internet and so forth. And when we get down to local problems and issues, there's a lot of information that can be aggregated to, to really reveal private things about people. Uh, and so we've got to make sure that no matter where we are in the world, and we're trying to, you know, bring technology in to help address these issues, that we're really doing a good job, uh, you know, being good stewards of the privacy of the information, keeping it secure. And then the third piece, you know, the assurance piece, that anything that comes in is good, anything that comes out of the computer is good and accurate, uh, and, and so forth. And, um, and these are some of the things that make people resistant to want to use the technology. I worry that if I go to the doctor... You know, my information is going to be somewhere, and somebody's going to know that I've got, uh, you know, a, a particular disease or something like that. Um, you know, and that that's a terrible example, especially if uh, that information is revealed. So, um, and that makes people apprehensive about using the computer at all, uh, because I don't know who's looking at my information or what they're going to do with it or how long they'll keep it or will they use it some way to come back and, and get me for something. Uh, you know, if there's some kind of... Um, political change within the country uh, and things like that. I mean, these have been long-standing problems with the use of computer technology in, in, uh, in not only developed countries, but developing countries uh, as well. So uh, we've really got to think about those particular issues to help people to feel comfortable, as well as the digital literacy and training, uh, which is imperative. On behalf of the show and our listeners, I'd really like to thank you, uh, Dr. John Gant, uh, William Brinley, and John Winhausen Jr. for sharing your thoughts on how the global connectivity can have an impact on the world's economy. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Please join Sun Joke All next Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Central Time, and 10 a.m. Eastern Time for another hour of CIO Talk Radio on the Voice America Business Channel. CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Siemens Smart Grid. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. 